lengua sin manos, como osas fablar. Tongue without hands, how dare you speak. Here in, in, in this house, um, in the dining room, there was a big, which is a big room, there was a big carpet, kind of persian a carpet, with quite broad borders around it, with square. And I, see, I was a rather solitary child, not lonely, but I, I never wanted friends until about 15. And uh, I had two great amusements, above all, well, reading especially, of course. But apart from that, uh, in good weather, I would go out to the back garden and I would uh, play tennis up against the, just by myself, up against the, uh, the wall of the, the shed at the bottom of the back garden. And I replayed Wimbledon. And I managed to get uh, all the people that hadn't won and that I would have wanted to win, they all won in my Wimbledon. And, and indoors, on the carpet in the dining room, I had a lot of dinky cars, you know, models of... They would fit in a hand, you know, in your hand. Beautiful models of racing cars of those days. And I was mad about motor racing. I mean, the racing cars then were very beautiful. The Maseratis, the Bugattis, the Alfa Romeos, the Mercedes-Benzes, the Auto Unions. They were very beautiful cars and various colours. And so I, I, re, I re-performed those races around the border of the carpet. And I remember one day when I was 15 having put the, been called in for tea to the kitchen and having put the, 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 um, put the cars away into their boxes, I remember standing in the middle of the carpet there, looking down at it and suddenly realising I've got to stop being a child. From now on, I cannot be a child anymore. I have stopped. I am stopping childhood and I remember feeling, just for a few, for a minute or two maybe, a sense of desolation, utter desolation and loss and wanting to go back to childhood and knowing at the same time, this is one of the clearest memories I have ever, knowing at the same time that it was quite impossible. And now whether... That moment happened before or after, I'm not sure, but it couldn't have been long before or long after I had the first wet dream. And, of course, that is something that changes everybody's life with all, all the possible consequences. And, and that was the beginning then and I also took to the booze when I could, uh, when I was 16 and especially 17. And that was the beginning of my long argy-bargy with my mother, who thought neither sex nor booze should ever have been invented. My mother and father met in Sinn Féin in Glasgow. Uh, 
but he lost his job because he wouldn't give up his Sinn Féin activities. He started out as a, an apprentice printer uh, at 14, and in a, in, he was the first Catholic and the first Irish person to be employed in a big printing firm called Miller's. And uh, my father gradually uh, achieved the position of managing director of that firm. But one day, um, old Mr. Miller, as he always called him, brought him into the uh, into his office and said that he'd been told by the police to ask my father to resign. He said he didn't want him to go, but they were because or, or resign if he wouldn't give up his Sinn Féin activities. So my father said, I won't do either. So he got the sack and he was deported and to Frongoch, uh, which was a great internment camp, you know, for a lot of uh, Irish people at that time. And then later imprisoned in Mount Joy because he took the uh, anti-treaty side. And so he found it hard to get work in, in Dublin, in Ireland. He was born in Seville Place, in the North Strand. So he was a Dublin man. So they had to go back to Scotland, and where I was born in 1927. Um, but then when de Valera got into power, uh, my mother wrote a letter to de Valera, whom she knew, to some extent, she was a good friend of Countess Markovitch, but she had met de Valera a few times, and she wrote saying, look, we have made a sacrifice for Ireland. Uh, I want to bring my son up in holy Catholic Ireland. The fact that it was de Valera was in power and they'd been on his side in the Civil War, that consoled them greatly. But, uh, you see, my mother was uh, a very intelligent woman but she was also a Puritan. She'd brought, been brought up as a Puritan. My father, I don't think, would ever have gone, set foot in a church if she hadn't badgered him into it. And, and he was a socialist as well as a nationalist. And uh, when, when de Valera began to execute Republicans, she, she was deeply depressed and disillusioned. And she never forgave de Valera for that. I think his time in internment in Wales and in Mount Joy, where he was beaten up in the dungeons, I think, you see, he was... He was in his 50s by the time I was born. And, uh, and not having had this well-paid job and uh, and then not being able to get work and having to live off my mother's earnings as a teacher and a lodging housekeeper both in in uh, in Greenock and here in Dublin I think it it kind of broke him a bit it broke his spirit for most of my life, while they were both alive, they had rows, they, they had frequent rows. And I remember my mother once actually, uh, see, I remember seeing her in the kitchen. She was at one end of the kitchen. My father was going out the door of the kitchen. 
and it had a terrible argy-bargy and uh, she actually threw a hammer at him, which missed. Now, that's the only time I remember anything like that. But they, and she, she, I mean, they, she early on, I think, not long after I was born, stopped, uh, stopped having sex with him. Uh, though he never stopped being in love with her right up to the end. But he was several years older than her. And uh, I think he was a great gardener, and I think his garden was his great solace. And me, I mean, they both... I was an only child, and they both pampered me like mad. We lived to begin with in uh, Moyne Road in in Ranala with uh, a very prissy, uh, respectable... um, landlady called Miss Brown. We just had a one rented room, I think, in use of the kitchen. Uh, and Miss Brown and my mother um, um, were at loggerheads because Miss Brown was Finne Gael and rabid Finne Gael and my mother was rabid uh, Republican. <laughs> so they used to have terrible disagreements. But, uh, and I went to school in Ranelagh to the Mrs Cassidy I remember the silver railings. Uh, they had a small school, a small private school. That's where I first learned Irish, of course. And then we lived in Fitzwilliam Square, uh, Fitzwilliam Street for a while, and then in Grosvenor Terrace, which is just off Leinster Road. And then when I was 10, we moved to, to the house I still live in, in Rathgar Road. The Rathmines End, I'm happy to say. Uh, I remember when I was coming home from school on the bus from Sing Street um, when we turned uh, the corner when the bus turned turned the corner into Rathgar Road uh, some of the now I'm talking about the 30s and 40s some uh, of the conductors uh, used to put on a posh accent and call out Rothgore Road and you know the reason we moved here was to my mother a bigger place so my mother could keep more lodgers and keep food in our mouths. You know, she was a, lodg- a lodging housekeeper. I knew what we weren't posh, you know. I resented those conductors, you know. And she put a name on it. A man is screaming in his bathroom and the neighbours mistake it for singing. The door is locked, the window's barred, but the noise goes through the walls and the neighbours mistake it for singing. One says, he hasn't a note in his head. Another, he sounds happy, the monster. And a foreigner strolling in the street below marvels. What exuberance, what brio! These people have. What noise can the man himself think he is making? Then I went abroad to Geneva uh, for two years and worked as a translator for the United Nations, the International Labour Office. 
and then I went to Spain via Portugal and um, the one thing I got out of out of the year and a half in UCD was well apart from falling in love for the first time having been in lust for several years but never love and uh, that again is a sea change uh, apart from that the main thing I got out of it was that I learned Spanish and fell in love with it and therefore Spain and uh, decided that's where I wanted to live. Sometime in 1963, uh, I was 37 then, and I found myself going on the spree all day in uh, all over Barcelona with two young Irish brothers who were teaching English in, in, in Barcelona. And we ended up at about two in the morning, perhaps, uh, in a bar called the Bar Brandy in a small side street off the Parallelo, which is kind of uh, semi, or was kind of semi-red light district. And they lived quite near there, and I was going to stay the night with them. And there was a, was a small bar uh, with about three people who turned out to be regulars sitting on stools. There were no tables at the bar. And there was a woman, the woman of the house, Banna T, Banna Liana, um, striding up and down behind the, the counter in jodhpurs, uh, cracking a whip. A formidable creature she was. And we ordered three vermouth, and she charged us three times the normal price, which was a bit much, and we protested. Now, none of us were sober, but we were perfectly within our rights to protest and all hell broke loose. And the next thing, the regulars were lifting stools and attacking us, and I was pushed out through the glass door, uh, glass splintering all around. I didn't get cut, oddly enough, and uh, then we, were, we took to our heels, and we were... We had only just got to bed in their small uh, flat, when the door was broken down, it was five stories up, and the, boor, the door was broken down by the police, whom the bar Brandy Jodhpur Lassie had called, obviously. And uh, we were beaten down the stairs, beaten with battens on the backs of our legs and down the stairs into a police car. And in the police car, one of us, uh, who didn't know very much Spanish, expressed his opinion of Franco in two words, one of which was Franco's name, and the other in front of it was a good old Anglo-Saxon monosyllable, whereupon they slapped him across the face, you know, side to side. And so we were charged with uh, being drunk and disorderly, and, but the much more serious accusation was Mofa del Jefe del Estado, mocking the chief of state, namely Francisco Franco Ibaamonde, the Generalissimo. And uh, we were in a big cell in the, in the Palace of Justice with four or five 
uh, Spanish, mostly Andalusian, petty crooks of one kind or another. One old man, he was the only old man there, and I don't know, maybe he was embittered by something. Old men tend to get embittered at times. Um, but he said to me, I had a beard, you see. It was brown at that time. And he said to me, you know, you'll get jailed for this. You'll get years in jail. And the first thing they'll do to you when they get you into jail is they'll shave that beard off. And I can tell you the prison barbers are not gentle. And you know, that upset me more than anything else. The prospect of it. But at a certain point, at about one in the morning, we were, the three of us, were brought into the chief judge's uh, um, palatial office. Oh, I, I had spoken earlier in an open plan office to, uh, to, the, uh, to one of the judges. There were about ten judges interviewing the people at different tables, in an, yeah, and, and they were all talking Catalan to each other shouting across at each other in Catalan. And he grilled me for a while, and then he asked me what I was doing there, and I said, teaching English, and, and I thought I had, to, I had to say this to kind of try and preserve. I was scared out of my wits, of course, but uh, to kind of try and preserve some shred of dignity or self-respect, whatever you call it. I said, and I've also been translating and plan to go on translating quite a lot of Catalan poetry into English and Irish. But anyway, after a while, he thought and he said, well, I think that you are... Uh, the case against you is not as serious as against your friends... Uh, I think you could get out uh, shortly, but I'm afraid they may not. And now it was, and then he summoned the guards to take me back to the cell, and it was about two minutes' walk back to the cell, and in those two minutes I had to think furiously, what am I going to tell them, because I couldn't possibly tell them that. And... Uh, but anyway, at about one in the morning, we were brought into the big judge's uh, office, thick pile carpet, and uh, he was standing in a most immaculate suit behind his, his huge desk, and anyway, he told us that the charges he had decided were not as serious as he had thought, and uh, to come back in a fortnight's time for our acquittal papers, and... Oh, and he warned me, uh, he said, let this be a lesson to you, what is, uh, you know, associating with younger people, lead you astray.
So we left. It was, I don't know what time in the morning it was, small hours. And we walked, quite a long walk, back to their place where I was again staying the night. And there was one bar open and we went into it. We were the only customers. We had three brandies. We sat at the bar and the rather sleepy barman. And we had agreed before we got to the bar that we would never again tell or listen to a Franco joke. And after we had taken a couple of sips, the barman said to us, listen, did you hear the latest Franco joke? And what could we do? And we couldn't possibly say no. So started all over again. But I stayed on, and about two months later, uh, I went to the police to get my residence permit renewed. Oh, and by that time, I had I had brought my uh, I had got my my acquittal, which was a provisional acquittal. And I didn't care for the word provisional, but it was better than nothing. But then I um, so I went to the police. They told me to come back the next week and then the week after that. And the third time I went back, they told me that they could not renew my residence permit, that they could give me an eight-day exit permit. And I said, but I don't want to go, I want to stay. And they said, well, if you prefer... No, no, they they said, through the hatch, they said... uh, we're offering you an eight-day permit, exit permit, that's all. So I asked to see the chief of police, a very suave man. He didn't ask me to sit down, mind you. And uh, I showed him my paper, the provisional acquittal. He looked at us and then he said, listen, senor Uchinson, if uh, we were speaking Castilian, of course, and uh, he, he was Castilian, not Catalan. And uh, he threw it back across the, the table at me and uh, said, uh, you would agree, wouldn't you, that uh, if the police in your country uh, want a foreigner uh, to leave, they would tell him to leave. And, well, I, I can't remember what I said, but I pleaded with him. Not abjectly, but I said, look, I... I want to stay. I love Spain. I love Barcelona. And he said, well, you know, if you don't want to take the eight-day exit permit, we can always deport you in 24 hours. So I asked, could I ring the um, embassy in Madrid? He said, no. And uh, so I thought I'd better accept the eight-day exit permit. And I left. And uh, But... I talked to some Catalan friends and uh, they suggested that I go out to Perpignan, which is is, or, uh, is more than it was then. It is now more than it was then. It was a, a Catalan city always uh, in what is called French Catalonia. Uh, and somebody gave me the address of, of a Catalan exile living in... in uh, in, in Perpignan. So I got the bus and went there and uh, he brought me to see, he said, 
Kerat is the man for you. So he brought me to see this man called Giuseppe Kerat Iclapas, one of the finest men I've ever known in my life. He was then about 50. He had been a publisher, Catalan publisher in Barcelona under the Republic and the Generalitat and I'd had to go into exile, of course. But I'd carried on the publishing in Perpignan. And I remember the other man brought me out to see him in... He was sitting in his back garden, a small, stocky man with a big Mediterranean jowl and uh, in shorts. It was a hot summer day. And he jumped up from his seat and embraced me and he said, he cried out, Un Irlandes que parla catalá, an Irishman who speaks Catalan. And he embraced me, a bear hug. And I stayed with him and his wife, who was from the Pyrenees, for a fortnight and then finally uh, he had a friend at the border who found out that I was not on a blacklist and so I could go back just as a, a tourist so for the next three years when I went on living in Barcelona I came back in 67 I went out every three months or so and stayed with him and, uh, and he told me and came back as a tourist and... A girl in Jerez de la Frontera in the autumn of 1952. Lank, brownish hair and from under a pale grey shift only a faint breast sign. Her bare limbs, thin, limp and the oldest face I ever saw, the most hopeless, Scored by misery, no gleam at all in her eyes. Standing in the barber shop doorway as I was leaving, she asked me if I wanted her. I asked how much. Unduro, a five peseta coin. The rate was one sixty to the pound. I asked her age. Eleven, And looking down at her, I believed it. Poverty, like love, works wonders. Impeccably, Andalusianly shaven, I gave her some money. Can't remember exactly, but not much more than a duro, and made for the nearest bar. Duro is slang for a coin. In the dictionary, duro means hard. Oh, God, so many things. Um, the red earth in the olive groves in Andalusia. The great warmth and, 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 and friendliness of the people all over Spain, and, and Portugal indeed, um, the flamenco singing, the 
the sardanas, the dancing of the sardanas in Barcelona. In the, and this was one of the things that, like the anti-Franco jokes, kept the Catalans going especially. The sardana is a, a kind of round dance. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, uh, the, um, where three or four people form a circle and then the circle, others join it and it enlarges to seven or eight or maybe ten people all of all ages dancing in a circle and they put their handbags and jackets and, 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 and belongings uh, down in a pile in the middle of the circle and they dance round and the band, uh, which is called a cobla, plays the sardana. Uh, and the sardana came to be the symbol of, of Catalan... The, it was the only public assertion of Catalan identity and separateness all through Franco's regime. And it was allowed... They had to allow it, you know. And it was to watch that, a whole square, for example, the, the Plaza de San Jaume, filled with these people of all ages and all classes dancing. And it, it's a most wonderful dance. And it has, you know, it's fast and then it, it goes slow, almost marking time. And... Uh, the magnificent sound of the tenora, which is a, a high kind of whistle, tin whistle kind of instrument. That, to look down at it from a balcony, as I did a few times uh, when I was living on the square, was one of the most wonderful things uh, I've ever seen. I'm told that the young people now are not interested in the sardana, which is a great shame. But then... That's freedom, Peter. That's freedom, yes, that's freedom of a sort, yeah. An old watchmaker in Barcelona in the early 60s, he said to me one day, he said, Spain is a glory even now, as long as you never have anything to do with the police. And he was right, you know. And another man, an old Republican, said to me in Valencia in the mid-50s in a bar called The Half Moon in Valencia. I was there with John Jordan and uh, another friend. And he said to me, España antes era una gloria. Spain before was a glory. And by before, he meant before Franco, you know. Uh, he was more or less drinking himself to perdition. Um, and Spain, you know, even under Franco, it could be a wonderful country, you know. But, well... And then I was offered a job in Leeds. And it was there, for example, that uh, I first met um, 
Tarahukahan, the great Shanno singer, and who had been working on the sites, was working on them. And we met in the, with a couple of Irish people uh, in the Irish Centre in Leeds one quiet afternoon. We'd been turfed out of whatever pub we'd been drinking in. We spoke Irish to Darach and we asked him to sing. And uh, he said he hadn't sung for about 13 years because there was no, no audience. But he, uh, he was loath to sing, but he finally did. And he went on singing. And it was a voice full of, full of the warmth and the, the love for human beings that, in, that, his com- that when you were in his company, he just, just flowed out of him. And he managed to put that all into, into his singing. And the pain, I suppose, uh, he said to me, um, I fell in love when I was very young. He was a lover, and the love came through. In, in the singing and the love not just of, of individuals but no, no, I no, I did like Leeds actually. I I quite like Leeds. And I made several very good friends there. I never found a pub that I was really would call a local in Leeds. I didn't care for the pubs, especially the public bars. As I had a beard and glasses, I was working at the university, and I was frozen out of a couple of public bars, you know, in Leeds. The class distinction there cuts both ways, and it's so much stronger than here. I mean, it was, well, I'm talking about the 70s 70s now, Uh, but it was very strong. I was even told in one pub, which was the nearest one to where I was living, um, oh, we don't want people like you here. So I got the message. I could borrow 25 books at a time, if I could have carried them, from the university library. I had an account in the university bookshop. I could afford to buy books for the first time in years. And for the, uh, when I came back, I couldn't for a long time either. I had a very pleasant flat and with a red telephone beside the bed, I may say. Um, and, you know, for about two, two years, and I had some very good students, and 
and there was there was a great film club in Leeds and a very good theatre and there was the, the the largest Jewish population in England outside London which, and a very large West Indian uh, population too which meant that there was wonderful food uh, delicatessens and uh, one of the most the most continental market I've ever been in apart from the actual continent but more of my colleagues in the university tried to tell me Irish so-called Irish jokes than in any of the pubs with any of the ordinary people I met and so I just finally I mean I didn't listen I, from the start, I, I said, I don't want to hear it. And uh, which meant that budding friendships were quickly abolished, you know. But then, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to be. Uh, I found that illuminating, mind you, that it was the supposedly educated classes who were more given to it. Though, mind you, I will say that most of them were from the south of England and some of them were eating their hearts out because they weren't in Oxford or Cambridge, you know. They felt they were, they were as much in exile, more in exile, in fact, than I was. I was in Leeds on Bloody Sunday. The following Saturday, there was a big demonstration in Leeds organised by the various Irish groups and by uh, the, trade, the, the trade unions who walked through the centre of Leeds. And, uh, but I remember we were passing a, a pub called the Horse and Trumpet, which I rather liked. I mean, the march or the demo was passing the pub called the Horse and Trumpet, pub I, that had but the best uh, steak and kidney pie <coughs> in Leeds, and the best cottage pie, and I loved both. I used to go into it. But as we were passing, it was just the beginning of the holy hours, and there was a group of about six men standing outside it. They'd just come out of the pub, and they started shouting at us, Go home, you Fenian gets. And somebody I was walking with uh, said, told me that uh, that was the Orange Pub in Leeds, which I hadn't known. So I had to give up my lovely cottage pie. I didn't want to go in there anymore. And, and in, in terms of your writing, at the very least, politics have always been very central mm. to what's happened there. The, the frost is all over. Oh, yeah. The title poem itself actually gives well, many of the themes and of, of yeah. your book. Could you read it? OK. Frost is all over for Michael Hartnett. To kill a language is to kill a people... The Aztecs knew far better. They took over their victims' language, kept them carving obsidian beauties, weeded their religion of dangerous gentleness, and winged them blood flowers. That's a different way to kill a people. The Normans brought and grew, but Honor Croom could never make her Kerryman verse English. Traherne was in the music of his tears. We have no glint or caution who we are. Our patriots dream wolfhounds in their portraits. Our vendors pose in hunting garb. 
the nightmare forelock tugging madly at some lost leash. Spain, the Vikings never I think, means made me we irreversibly political. I mean, you couldn't. And knowing, knowing people like the, the old Republicans that I knew in Geneva and then in Perpignan, and knowing what had been done to them and seeing seeing the, the, the horrors of fascism, well, you couldn't, you couldn't but be political, you know. And that carried over then into other, into anywhere in the world. But the trouble is, the first book I ever published was called, uh, well, the first book of my own poems was called Tongue Without Hands, which I, is taken from a line in the Spanish epic poem, the Poema del Cid, about the great Cid Campeador who conquered the Moors. It's largely rather boring, like most epics, but there's a line which struck home to me very painfully. Lengua sin manos, quemo osas fablar, tongue without hands, how dare you speak? And it is uttered by a warrior in a council of war to the poet. The, the, the poet's expected to sing the praises of the champion, you know, the, the warriors. And the poet dares to voice an opinion. And the warrior says, tongue without hands, how dare you speak? And that is a dilemma of many poets. Thank you.